says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. The psalmist is trying to say there's realities of his name, of just who he is. And because of that, we want to give glory to God. And we, as we keep moving on, we, we also can define it as proclaiming the realities of someone or something else. Giving glory to that person or to that thing because of something inerrant within itself that's just beautiful. Exodus 28 says this. Um, this is uh, in directions for the, uh, the uh, priests to uh, create their garments. And their garments are very much ordained with jewels and gold. And they're beautiful things. And the word glory is used to describe um, Aaron's sashes and caps. It says, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. So the word glory also means uh, something that has an errant beauty just within itself. All right, We have even deeper meetings absorbing the realities of, of who someone is emotionally and with your soul that it could affect how you think and how you act and how you feel. The Hebrew word kavod has a, um, one uh, kind of uh, nuance of it is weighty, like it's heavy. You ever heard somebody say like, whoa, man, that's heavy, right? You can kind of substitute saying, whoa, man, that's, that's glorious. That's, that has some weight to it. And the story that uh, I, I could draw from is that says 33, one of the most uh, interesting stories And Moses is standing before God and he says, show me your glory. And God basically says, it's not as simple as that, Moses. If I showed my glory to you, you would drop dead. No man can see the face of God and live. And he says, if you really want this to happen, I have to tuck you in the corner of a rock and my back is going to pass by you. And only then can you see a shadow of my glory. That's a weighty, weighty glory, right? And so we can keep you on the New Testament. A lot of this is confirmed, right? But I want to kind of bring this to reality and use language that kind of can boil down this complex word of, of glory, all right? Is a multifaceted definition. So to keep giving you some kind of on the ground explanations, uh, Tim Mackey, he's a pastor in Portland, he made the observation that Someone's glory, because you and I, we all have glory, okay? We all have a glory to us. Imagine if the president were to pull up in front of the church right now, okay? You would have helicopters above, great pomp, news reporters probably would have tracked them down, secret service everywhere. He would have walked in. Maybe there'd be cheers or jeers, I don't know, depending on who you are. But all to say, all those things that we're talking about when the president were to walk into a room, that's his glory. The limousines, the, the flags waving the limousines, the secret service members, kind of the hush of, oh, the president's walked into the room. There's a glory with the presidential office that comes. And the environment that's created when such a person holding that office were to walk into a room, that's the glory of the presidential office. All right? More kind of explanations. The aroma or impression you give to others is part of your glory. All right? This is the connotations of the Hebrew word kavod. The things that you are known for is part of your glory. All of these things are the realities of who you are that are seen not necessarily by looking at you, but, but by looking at the things around you, the things you do, the things that come out of your mouth, the things that do that show us who you are. That's your glory. The only English word I could find that I think gives uh, the closest reality to what I'm trying to get at is the word aura. All right, the definition of the word aura is this. 
the distinctive atmosphere that seems to be generated by a person, place, or thing. The distinctive atmosphere that seems to be generated by a person, place, or thing, right? If you stand at the beach and you see the oceans, right, there's a calmness and just a, wow, this is huge. That's the aura of the ocean, and that's the glory of the ocean. Are you guys tracking with me so far? And so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. So now that we kind of define what glory in the Hebrew sense means, what does it mean that you were created for God's glory, God's aura? What does that actually mean? Well, the next thing in line is to define the glory of God, which is almost an impossible task. I, I, I try to sit and actually say, how can I write out an explanation of the glory of God? And I just sat there with my pencil. It's like, I don't know where to start. You can't. The Bible gives us dozens and dozens and dozens of names to describe this glorious God, and yet we are still left with an incomplete picture of who He is. There's no vocabulary or language with enough words to contain enough explanations and characteristics and adjectives of who God is to give us an accurate picture of who He is. It doesn't exist in this world. We are always left speechless, trying to define something like the glory of God. As you read that passage from Isaiah chapter 6 earlier, that when the angels are singing, glory, 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 is the Lord God of hosts, and the foundations just shook at the mention of his glory. And Isaiah can only respond to that saying, woe am I. I am a wicked man. I should not be standing here right now. There's no words that can describe this glory of God, but we have to at least make an attempt to describe his essence of who he is. God is truth, he is beauty, and he is goodness. Anything beautiful that we see in this world is only a glimpse of the beauty of our God. Any truth that exists in this world finds its source in God who is truth. Any goodness you've ever experienced in your life finds source in the God who is good by his definition. Any darkness, anything that resembles sin or wickedness spurs his wrath and only illuminates his goodness when that wickedness is revealed. There's no darkness in God. There's no impurities in God. He is perfectly holy and unique and set apart from anything that is in existence. 1 John 1-5 actually says there is no single bit of darkness found within our Creator, God. And so as we are creatures of Him, and Isaiah says you're created for His glory, right? And we, our existence adds to this glory, right? Isaiah says that we were created to be a part of that glory of God. And if we were created to be a part of that glory of God, this has crucial implications for our very lives. It means that our identity is ultimately wrapped up in God's glory. It is not separated from it. It should not be described apart from it. Our glory of who we are as people is not an end to itself. In fact, no glory out there is an end to itself. All glory that we see in this world, whether it be from the mountains or from a child being born or from the accomplishments of an Olympic you know, medalist winning everything, all of these things that are indeed glorious would not exist without our Creator God. And therefore, all of these things exist for the glory of our creator God. And here's the thing you must understand. Nobody's responsible for God's, for God's glory. 
It exists because he exists, and therefore anything glorious in this world finds its stop, its end, in his glory. Because he is only responsible for his glory. You are not responsible for any, any of your glory, ultimately. No accomplishments, no good things you've done, no kind personality you may have or good deed that you've done that may make you appear as a good all these things exist because God has gifted them to you, and its glory finds itself wrapped up in God's glory. And it is good, therefore good, when we say, for God's glory alone is why we live. It is a good thing that he expands his glory. If all that is true and good and beautiful is wrapped up in the glory of God, then we must yell, expand your glory. We want to see beauty and truth go throughout this world. We want to see anything good that exists be across all seas and all continents. God, please expand your glory. Your glory is the only hope for this broken world. So when we say that God exists for his own glory, we say, amen. Of course he does. That is a good thing. Please expand your glory. And please let us be swallowed up in your glory. So let's sum up where we have come thus far. All right, I wrote this sentence and I have... I know it's kind of, uh, just listen to it. I'll read a couple of times, all right? This glorious, weighty reality that your glory is only so glorious because there was another glory responsible for yours, a glory infinitely more glorious than any other observable glory only points to the truth that you exist for the sake of that glory. All right, one more time. This glorious, weighty reality that your glory is only so glorious because there was another glory responsible for yours. A glory infinitely more glorious than any other observable glory only points to the truth that you exist for the sake of that glory. And the Bible is even so bold as to say that we actually align our lives in such a manner that the line is straight and our glory is swallowed up in the fullness of the glory of God we have the fullness of life. We have the fullness of joy. The very joy of Christ finds its dwelling in our hearts. You will be happier than you've ever been before. More content and more at peace than you've ever been before. The very joy of Christ can be yours when your life exudes the glory of God. When your glory ultimately is just an addition to His glory. So if we worked our way to this point, I'm working very systematically here, the next question I have is, well, how do we give, God's, how do we give glory to God? Right? We define all these things. We know that our glory must be wrapped up in His glory. Well, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we do that? I hope you're saying, I want a piece of that for my life. Like, I, I, I desire that. I crave that. I long for that. I hope you're saying that. But let's be honest, because our culture is not very honest when it comes to what happens in here? What keeps you from living such a life? If you're honest with yourself, there's a lot of bad junk in here, all right? There's a lot of wicked thoughts that you're always kind of suppressing, right? There's a lot of things that you think and you feel that you know are not okay, but you kind of have to suppress down because you know if they were to bubble up, it would not be good, and sometimes they do indeed bubble up. And those things keep you from the purpose of why you exist, right? And even sometimes your good things that you do in life can be corrupted. I'll give an example. I was at Aldi's um, a couple weeks back, 
some of my kids and this woman next to me, um, she had lots of keys in her car. And she was just kind of standing around. She couldn't speak very good English. I can tell she was pretty lost, didn't know what to do. I was trying to talk with her, trying to help her out, you know, the best I could. And it's so ridiculous because in the back of my mind, I sat there. Nobody else was helping her, right? And I just wanted to really help her, but I had these thoughts like, I hope other people kind of see what you're doing because this is pretty awesome. Like you're helping her, nobody else is helping her. And I'm like, stop, no, I'm just, I just want to help. I don't care what people think about me, I just want to help. So I don't like suppress, but that happens. That Even our good deeds that we do in life has that voice below saying, hey, you're pretty awesome, right? If you're honest, that's there. Our culture says things like, well, just believe in yourself, just trust in yourself. Right? You see that all the time. You hear that all the time. Well, the answer to your troubles, just believe in yourself. And the Christian response is, no, don't believe in yourself. Your heart's really jacked up. Stop. Don't, don't do that. That will actually lead to our destruction if we have a, a society where all we do is believe in ourselves. That could destroy us. Do you understand? That could destroy us. That's why we need the gospel message. So what do we do from here? Augustine said this. Um, well, yeah, Augustine said this in his City of God book, a beautiful statement. This is the issue with us, all right? Describing the city of God, the city of man, he says, there are two cities formed by two loves. The earthly city formed by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly formed by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. So what is the issue with us in the city of man? We love ourselves. We just love ourselves. And we even try to speak of all of our lives giving glory to God. There's a tension inside of us because we say, wait a minute, we're awesome. I'm awesome. Right? I want this to be about me. And this is our entire life's struggle. Right? The modern day assumption is that we are generally good, but even classical thought knew that we are jacked up and that we needed a, some kind of uh, divine person to come and, and to assist and to help us. So as a Christian, what we can do is look to Hebrews chapter 1, and we start getting our bearings straight as to this question of what do we do? How do we give glory to God? When I was young, I used to uh, love, absolutely love these, uh, the, the really practical, like, go-and-do chapters of the Bible, like Colossians 3, Romans chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, um, you know, I didn't really enjoy all the theology stuff of who Jesus was and what he did. And, you know, but I would just like to read, you know, Colossians 3, go and, and do this and go and do this. And I just wanted to go and do that. And I used to listen to Max McLean. He yells, I don't know if you listen to him, but great audio Bible, you know, right? And just on loop in my car, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, chapter 4. I listened to go and do, go and do, go and do. So I would try to go and do, I try to go and do because I wanted to give God glory in my life. But I was missing something insanely crucial to this equation. Like, I want to be a good person. I want to be a good person. I want to be a good person. So let's listen to what I need to go and do. And I, I, I found my old journals from when I was like a teenager recently, and I kept just reading them. And it was just this tension, like on every single day of, man, I failed again. Oh, I screwed up again. I failed again. When will I ever stop failing? I failed. I failed. And I was thinking, wow, I was really like, I was pretty messed up in those days. Like, I didn't get it. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Listen to this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. Listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The, the Greek word is, is doxa here, right? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to see an example of a human being who lived perfectly, giving glory to God at all times and in all ways and in all things, we look to Jesus Christ, who is the very radiance of the glory of God, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, right? The aura of God was perfectly found in Jesus Christ. This is a starting point for you and I if we want to know how to live this life swallowed up in the glory of God. We can't just go to those to-do chapters and look at how to be the best this or how to do this or how to do that or how to feel this. We have to look to Jesus. He perfectly did all of these things on our behalf. He is the uncreated one. He ultimately fulfilled Isaiah 43 verse 7 when he came into flesh and skin and bones. I mean, he became that man who was ultimately the uncreated one, but who ultimately lived for the glory of God alone. He died for your sins, was raised to perfection and newness of life, the first fruits of a future world that will contain no sin. And when he left this world, he sent his spirit to dwell in his people and to apply, to apply his victory over sin and death to your hearts today. So our spiritual reality before God because of Jesus, who was the ultimate radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, we are now clean and holy and righteous because of Jesus, right? Our experience today is one of this. If we want to exude this glory of God, we look to Jesus as the motivation for all the holy things we do. And imagine just, just this muddy cup that's full of just muddy water, right? And imagine the Spirit, who's just this, this pitcher, it's just full of never-ending fresh water. And it is pouring into your muddy cup, right? And this is your life. The mud is just kind of bubbling out, right? And the, and the clear waters kind of keep coming forward. And we hope that that process, there's more clear water than muddy water, right? We know the muddy water will never go away in this life. But that's the process of sanctification is this fresh, beautiful, thirst-quenching thirst water of the Spirit is just being poured into our lives as the muddiness and junk is bubbling out. So what is our motivation for living a life as we want that mud and that junk out of our life that we may give glory to God alone? We look to Jesus. He was utterly swallowed up in the glory of God in every way. In every way. So your glory, this is the, how the, the process is to look, your glory is to be swallowed up in the glory of Christ because his glory is swallowed up in the glory of God. And there, friends, is a freedom that we have in this life. There is ultimate freedom when we're living for his glory. You get to completely forget about yourself. You realize that any glory you think you have only exists for the sake of God. And the only way it can be anything remotely close to picturing God's glory is because of your faith in Jesus Christ and because of all that he accomplished for you. And once you realize that, the chains, are they fall from your wrist. And you say, I get to live my life and not even think about myself anymore. I don't exist for myself. I exist for the sake of Christ. Only then will your humanity be restored. And only then will you be living for the glory of God alone. 
Do you guys understand? Tracking. All right. So he's looked at some application here. Um, what are steps to finding this kind of life? What are steps to finding this kind of life? Application. Colossians 3, 17. This part will not be on your screen. It says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we're talking about this, it may seem like a rather complex thing. Say like, man, uh, like, how do I start this? Like, where do I start? If you were to say, you know, uh, here's, here's a good healthy step one, right, of really uh, trying to align your life to the glory of God, where do we begin? Right, when Jesus came, he addressed the heart motives before anything else, right? He came and, and said, if, if you're feeling lust, then you've already committed adultery. If you're feeling anger, you've already murdered. So when we start answering the question of where do we begin to live this God-glorifying life for his glory alone, we have to address the heart. We have to go there, right? Because if I were to go to a checklist of, well, go do, you know, be kind to your neighbor today. Okay, I did that. Like, I don't, we're not going to do that right? Because one day you'll fail and the cycle will start all over again. That's the aim at your heart. And I scoured the New Testament trying to see something consistent that Paul started with that he repeats over and over and the, the other apostles repeated over and over when they addressed the churches in their letters. And one of them, there's not, there's not the only one, there's numerous things, but the one that really stuck out to me that I think is very simple but very crucial and important is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Colossians 3.17, we just read it. Whatever you do in word or deed, that's everything. One of those junk drawer verses, that's, that's everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Guys, when you receive something with thanksgiving, you are recognizing that what you received does not belong to you, but rather is a gift. And that gift is to be enjoyed in light of the one who gave it. When you see the sun peeking through your bedroom curtains, you can open your eyes and thank God for giving you another day. When you are changing that fifth diaper, you can thank God for the gift of that child. When you are clocking again after a long week of work, thank God for another day to work and bring money home so that you have food and shelter for yourself and for your family. Listen, 1 Timothy 4, 4 says, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Thanksgiving is a posture before God. When we say, thank you for these things that you have given me, the Bible's clear in 1 Samuel that he has power over life and death. He, he could snatch you up right now if he wanted to. He could drop you dead right now if he wanted to. He has ultimate power over you. So anything you've been given in this life is from him. It's from the giver of all good things, James says, right? And so when we respond with thanksgiving to these gifts, thanksgiving then acts as a container, an limiter for your life. What is received with thanksgiving cannot be enjoyed so much to the place of sin because then you think that you own whatever you received. And you've forgotten that you are stewards of these gifts, right? And that's when sin begins to dwell up and you enjoy them to the point with saying this can replace God. The gifts can replace God himself. 
when Timothy says you can enjoy anything and everything before you if you receive it with thanksgiving, recognizing the one who gave it to you. That is a baby step towards a God-glorifying life. But once we get into the habit of receiving all things with thanksgiving, we get to truly enjoy this life. When I see Christians walking around with this, like, weight, it's like, how are you doing today? Oh, uh, you know, I've just another bad week, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying their life may not be hard or, you know, challenging things may be happening to their life. But if you really read the New Testament, you see these things. We have the ability to enjoy, during the good times and the bad things, this life to the fullest. We can walk around with our shoulders up saying, God is completely in control. Through Christ Jesus, he has given me all these good things. Therefore, I will receive them with thanksgiving and walk with faith, knowing that he is here and he loves me. He takes care of me. When people see that kind of life of a Christian, they're going to say, what in the world is wrong with you? I don't understand this kind of joy that you have. That's when Peter's correct. Be ready to give a response. To say, well, yeah, he loves me. Do you know what he's done for me through Jesus? Do you know the good gifts he's given me in this life? I can't believe it. I'm so happy today. Right? And even in the midst of your mourning, you can say, yes, I'm sad. I'm mourning for what may have happened. But in the midst of your mourning, you can say, look to verses like in Genesis. When the evil was intended, when the bad things came, Joseph said, but God intended it for good. And we know in Romans that all good things, all things happen ultimately for the good of him, right? We can say, yes, but God is so big and so good that he can even turn these things for him. You're walking around with that joy and that posture of humility before our God. Thanksgiving in all circumstance, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you today. So as we wrap up the sermon, all right, I know it's a bit of a shorter sermon, but that's okay. As you wrap up this sermon, we go to the cup and the bread. And I ask, in summation, whatever is on your heart and your mind, as you're looking at your life, you're saying, I want that God-glorifying life. I know Jesus lived this for me. I want my life to be something like the life of Christ by the help of the Spirit. Whatever comes to your mind immediately that you know is in the way of that, right? That you know is, is, is the block that keeps that life from happening. Maybe it's a cyclical sin. Maybe it's just a spirit of complaining where you're not giving thanks as you should. Whatever it may be that is keeping you from living that God-glorifying life, we get to remember the death of Christ and to say that he's removed all of our sin from us and we can make the choice by the help of the Spirit to not live in the passions of our former ignorance, but rather to walk in the newness of life that he has to offer. He's died for those sins, and mercy awaits you this morning. So as we come to the cup, as we eat the cracker, represents his body broken for us. Um, may we receive his mercy, and may his spirit empower us to live this joyful, God-glorifying life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, I thank you for each person in this room. Um, they've been brought here not by accident, Lord. Um, you wanted everybody to be here this morning. Lord, as the wonders of the glory of who you are was perfectly shown in Christ Jesus and in his grace, 
the life that he lived has been accredited to our account that we can go by the help of the Spirit to live such a life that's like Christ's. Lord, I pray that we can repent of the things that keep us from living such a God-glorifying life. That our heart can find a posture of thanksgiving every day in all things and in all times and in all circumstances. That we can look to you and say thank you for all things. And pray that in our thanksgiving, your glory and our glory be wrapped up in your glory. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen.